Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so glad to have you with us this morning, especially if you are um, a, uh, a mom or anyone over the age of 18 who is a woman. We, uh, as we said, want to honor you on the way out. It's a way of giving you t- um, a, a gift uh, because at the church, um, if you are a woman in the faith, you are a mother, whether you have biological children or not. And so we're, we're really glad to have you here and happy Mother's Day to you. Second, uh, just a quick reminder, this is our last week of our current service times, which means next week, this time, this room will be empty unless you're here and you want to be, you want to nap in a pew, you can do that. Uh, But remember, next week we'll have one service for our summer uh, service times at 915 in the worship center uh, here, and then Sacred Ground will be 9 and 1045. Uh, Third and and finally, um, this was a, a significant week for our culture and with the leaked opinion of the potential of removing the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade. Um, I wanted to speak to that, both because we don't know what is ahead, but what we do know is that followers in the way of Jesus, we want to both announce and make visible the reality of the kingdom of God, which is that in the kingdom of God, every human being is made in his image. And our laws should, or we hope, would respect that truth, but we live in a country where that has never been the case. From the beginning of our our country, our laws have excluded certain people from human rights, whether that's because of their race or because they were born in, or they're still in the womb. And our speech as Christians should respect that truth, that our goal is not to win political arguments, but to make visible the the beauty of the alternative reality of the kingdom of God. Our culture's vision of both abortion and sexuality is not beautiful. It commodifies women. It's left millions of children vulnerable to poverty or without life. And our goal as Christians should not just be to speak those truths, but to convey with our lives, both with our commitment to the poor and to the vulnerable and every human being, that we see them as containing incredible worth, beauty, and value. And our vision and our speech in all of our words should reflect those things. So to that end, I'm going to pray. I'm going to read our text for this morning, which is Galatians 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, then preach. But first, I want to pray. Uh, Father, we stand amazed that when you created us, human beings, you said, let us make human beings in our image, after our likeness. But what an astounding truth to see another human life, another human being, is to see your image your likeness, that the babies that are being held in our nursery right now, they contain your image and your likeness. All of the children in our church, wherever they are, if they're in children's ministry, in one of our services, those children who minutes ago were scouting the donut table to make the proper choice, they contain your image, your likeness. The teenagers in our church, one of whom sang for us a few minutes ago, who we've seen grow up, contain your image and your likeness. 
And every one of us adults in this room, whether we are fresh out of college or we needed a walker to aid our strength to make it into worship, contain your image and your likeness. Every single person in this room, no matter how light or dark their skin, no matter how old or young they are, in the womb, out, contain your image and your likeness. That is an astounding truth. That we are surrounded by your beauty and that as we, as we speak to one another this morning, may we listen, look one another full in the eye and behold the glory and beauty of your creation, your image, your likeness. And we long to, to live in a kingdom, in a world that upholds the image of God. And, and so I pray that what we have read in the leaked opinion this week is upheld and that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. But Father, we want more than that. We want laws in a culture and a society that upholds the image of God and all of its laws, institutions, practices, and speech. Our culture does not believe this, and sometimes if we are honest, we Christians do not believe this. We speak in ways to other people with words that are not worthy to be spoken to another person who contains your image. We can be guilty of self-righteousness, thinking ourselves superior image bearers because we have the right morality, the right politics, or whatever pathetic means by which we try to lift ourselves higher than another person. Forgive us, for we are all equal before you, equally broken as sinners and equally made in your beautiful, perfect image. And we give you thanks that your sin has not been the final word, or that our sin has not been the final word. Jesus came to restore your image in us, to make right what is wrong. He bore your image, the Father's image, the image of God, to perfection, sinlessly, beautifully. He healed the vulnerable and spoke to a child the same way he spoke to kings. He was so committed to our image-bearing likeness, he gave us his life to make us right. So now we open his word, we turn our eyes to him, your son, that we may properly, beautifully, and powerfully live a life that announces the truth of the kingdom of God to our broken world, that every human being is made in your image and likeness. Do that in us, I pray, for the glory of your name, amen. Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, hear now the word of the Lord. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. 
And this is God's word. Well, no human being in history had had a more dramatic life change than Paul, the man who wrote the text I just read. At one point of his life, he is opposing Christianity with violence. And then at another point of his life, he is the most successful church planter in history, responsible, I would say, for more conversions in the history of the world than anyone else. That's a pretty dramatic change from violently persecuting Christians to being its most effective evangelist and witness. How does that change in a person's life happen? And the answer, at least the answer I've been trying to put forward the last few weeks in this series in Galatians, is the gospel. The gospel frees you to live a very different type of life. But as I was meditating on on Paul's dramatic and seismic life change this week, from violent opposer of Christianity to its most effective witness, that's a dramatic seismic change. I begin to ask myself, has my life undergone a dramatic seismic change? Have I encountered the same gospel that dramatically shifted and changed Paul's life? Has that gospel been the same gospel I believe in? Have I undergone a similar seismic shift in my life? That when when someone from the outside would look at me, they'd see me pretty typical. I'm a a 38-year-old American male with no hair and a very impressive beard. (laughs) Very normal except for the beard. But if they were to press in further to like my parenting, would they say that that is not your average 38-year-old American male with no hair and an impressive beard. Look at how, that's radically different parenting. Or if they they got a a hold of my my bank statement and they looked at at where my money flows, would they say that person is radically different than other people like him, similar age, similar culture. If they looked at my, my relationships, the way I treat my friends, or the people that I work alongside, would they say, man, that, some, something got a hold of that guy. Or if you, if you looked at my, my calendar, how I spent the last seven days, would you say, that, that is not your typical American 38-year-old man. Have I encountered the same gospel as Jesus and therefore undergone seismic, dramatic shifts in my life? And I would put the same question to you. Paul, here in this passage, describes in intimate ways, like we don't have anywhere else in the New Testament, how the gospel got into his life and why it produced such radical change. And so, looking at the gospel he talks about and the way it impacted his life, We can reflect on our own lives and ask, are we encountering the same message he did? And the first thing Paul makes clear about the gospel is that the gospel is not a human message. This is actually how he starts the gospel, uh, the book of Galatians. He writes, Paul, him, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's verse one. Paul's making the point, my ministry, my preaching didn't come because someone else uh, called me into this, didn't come because uh, I went to a class and I learned it, and then I said, no, God himself intervened in my life, that's why I'm preaching what I'm preaching. My apostleship is not through human beings. 
And then he repeats that point in verse 11. He says, I'd have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel which preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I got my gospel, Paul says, from God himself. This is not a human being type of message. Now, the reason Paul is saying that, it's really important to understanding Galatians. So here, I got to do something, and I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to do so that you're not bored and, and surprised. I have to give you like a five-minute history lesson of why Paul is saying these things and walk through basically verses 11 through chapter 2 of verse 10, and I'm going to do it in about five minutes. So here's the thing. Five minutes. If you make it to the end, that's great. If you get bored, that's okay. I'll remind you in five minutes. You can check back in. But historical lesson, five minutes. Three things I need to say about Paul and his life. First, Paul's conversion. In verse 15, Paul describes his conversion. He says, but when he, God, who had set me apart for, uh, before I was born, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So Paul's talking about his conversion, and two things happen. One, God himself intervenes in his life. When we read about that in Acts 9, Paul was on his way to persecute Christians, and God uh, Jesus himself showed up and, s- and said, you're not going to do that. You're going to do something else. And the other thing Paul's going to do is pr- actually preach the gospel to Gentiles. So Paul says, listen, I was a persecutor of Christians and then God revealed Jesus to me. And that was, as he actually quite literally revealed Jesus to him on the road to Damascus and it changed Paul's life. But what Paul says that's important and, and we need to hear is Paul says, After that happened, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So Paul's conversion, right? Jerusalem, you have uh, Peter and the apostles, all of of the disciples of Jesus. They're in Jerusalem. Paul gets converted uh, on the road to Damascus over here. And Paul says, I didn't then go to Jerusalem to confer with them about what happened. I went away into Arabia immediately. And so the question Christians have wondered for for a long time in verse 17, when Paul says, I went away into Arabia, what did he do there? Did he just pray for for three years? And I think the best answer to that question is Paul went, he immediately started preaching the gospel and planting churches. And the reason I think that is in in one of the Corinthian letters, Paul says that basically he he suffered persecution under uh, the king of the uh, Nabataean dynasty, which was in Arabia. And the only way that probably happened is if in these three years, Paul was preaching the gospel in Arabia. Again, we're not totally sure, but that's probably what happened. So here's, here's what matters. What matters is Paul's converted. He doesn't go to Jerusalem to, to say, okay, you guys teach me how, what the gospel is. He's already got it from Jesus, and he goes and starts preaching from Arabia. That's the first point. Second point in this history lesson is after those three years, so he's converted, three years pass, then he makes his first trip to Jerusalem. And we read about that in verse 18 of chapter 1. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, uh, same guy, and remained with him 15 days. So his first trip to Jerusalem comes three years after his conversion, and he spends about two weeks with Peter. And we're clear, there's no disagreement on the gospel. They meet, they have some conversation. Then Paul goes out onto his missionary journeys, which take up all of Acts 9 through 11. And for 14 years, Paul plants churches in the Gentile region. But then, and this is point three of our historical lesson, we're almost done. You've almost made it. He goes back to Jerusalem after 14 years. This is in chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along 
with me. And the reason why he goes to Jerusalem is, is at this point, a debate is becoming more significant in the early church, which is this. If you are a Christian, do you have to keep the Jewish law in order to be a Christian? Do all, all Christian uh, boys and men have to be circumcised? Do you have to eat the food laws that the, Jewish, that the Old Testament lays down? That becomes one of the most significant questions facing the early church. And they talk through it, and they all agree. The answer to those questions are no. And that's what Paul means in verse 9. It says, when James and Cephas, again, that's Peter, when James and Peter and John, who seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And what he's saying there is, we agreed you do not have to keep the Jewish law to be a Christian. Uh, The problem is, there were a lot of Christians who did not agree with that, and they had gotten to Galatia and said, you know, Paul's not a real apostle, He's not really spending time in Jerusalem. He's not really, uh, he wasn't really a part of their school. We were a part of their school. And we want to tell you, you do have to keep the Jewish law in order to be a Christian. You do have to be circumcised. And that's the debate going on in Galatia. And that's why Paul says, no, I got my gospel from Jesus, not from any man. And then when I did go and talk to, to the Jerusalem apostles, we agreed on the gospel. We made it. Historical lesson over. So what's the point? Well, the main point is that independently, Paul and Jerusalem and Peter and the apostles all agreed the gospel is something you receive by faith, not through moral effort and attempts and and works. You're saved through faith in trusting the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And that's actually an incredible testimony to the truth of the gospel. If you're someone who's skeptical of, of Christians' claims, that's okay. But it's pretty amazing that Paul is saying, I was converted and had the same message as these people over in Jerusalem, both of us by Jesus, and both came to an astounding conclusion, which even though they were Jewish people and believed the entirety of this book was the word of God, they came to the conclusion that we did not have to keep the Jewish food laws anymore, that things said in the Old Testament as a part of the Old Testament covenant no longer had to to be done by Christians. That's an incredible thing that Jewish Christians came to that conclusion. The only explanation to me is that there was a God giving that non-human message to his people. So, the gospel is not a human message. Which raises the question, well, what, what is human? What is the human message? And the human message of religion, which we talked at length about last week, ultimately all religion says, if you obey God, then he will love you. Be a good person, God loves you. The gospel is the reverse of that, is because God loves you and you have received Jesus through faith and grace, you can now live a life of obedience and freedom in the kingdom of God. The gospel reverses the order, and it's a non-human message for that reason, because all human messages are obey God, then he will love you. It's, it's why a lot of even Christian churches begin to teach that over time. If you do this, then God will love you. But ultimately, there. There's no dramatic life change. There will be no seismic shift in your life if what you believe is that you must obey God in order for him to love you. You will not have dramatic change in your life if that's what you believe for two reasons. One is you're only going to change enough for God to love you. It's sort of like paying your taxes. You give just enough to the government so that they will not arrest you. And I'm almost entirely confident no one in this room has ever at any point in your life said, you know, God was pretty good to me this year. 
The debt's pretty large. I'm going to kick in a little extra towards the government this year just as a sign of my... You don't do that because you, ju- you pay as little as you can in order to not get arrested. And that is how many people approach God. I will give you enough obedience so that I know I'm still in your good standing, but the rest of my life is yours. So how little of my money can I give away? How, how little life change can I get away with and, and still have God love me? You'll only change enough for God to keep loving you. Second is you're, in that way of viewing the world, you're working out of your own willpower. What if the message of the gospel or the message of your life is, uh, I obey God, then he loves me. Well, you have to get up the willpower to obey God. And you will have some, you'll, you'll make some moderate changes to your life, but the dramatic seismic shift that happens to Paul will not be true in your life. Whereas if instead you receive the non-human message that the God of the universe gave you his only son, to save you, to redeem you, to make you whole, to restore your image in you, that will fuel you into a totally different type of life. At least it should. So the gospel, it is not a human message. That's, that's the first thing Paul is, is getting at. This, this thing came from heaven. The second thing about the gospel, Paul says, is the gospel is an intrusion. And I love what he writes in verse 16 when he describes encountering Jesus. He says, God, verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, if you have a Bible open, the word to might have a note to it, and then you got to go down, and it says in the Greek, it's in me. And that is true. Uh, That should read that Jesus was revealed in Paul, not to Paul. And there's a big difference between something coming to you and something getting inside of you. And when Paul describes the encounter of Jesus, it's an intrusion. Jesus did not come to me, Paul says. Jesus got in me. And that's what, that's what it's like to encounter the gospel, is you encounter a force that's dealing with you. It doesn't just come to you, it gets in you. And the best person I've heard describe this is C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity when he writes this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks and the roof, and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. Presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The gospel is an intrusion. God doesn't just reveal Jesus to you. He reveals Jesus in you. He gets in and he starts going to work. And you see Paul, you see this in Paul's life in a couple of interesting ways. And so I want to read a couple of things Paul says about himself, which are pretty stunning. As I said earlier, Paul was probably the most successful church planner in all of history. And yet he says this about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve even to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See, oftentimes what I hear 
from religious people who, who I think are living out of the frame, if I obey God, then he'll love me, is when you do a lot of things for God, you start having the spirit, well, God owes me. Look at all I've done. That's not Paul's spirit at all. Even though he had done so much at this point when he wrote this letter, he still tapped into to the grace of God invading his life. I don't even deserve the apostleship I have, Paul says. And the only way you say something like that is if, if God has gotten in and he's begun to work on you in ways that, that you're stunned God would use you because you know how deep your sin and brokenness goes. That's the first thing Paul says. It's pretty incredible. He says something else, though, in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, what I don't think Paul is doing is something I, I, I see often in the church world, which is uh, people say, I'm a sinner, or I'm just a sinner, as a way of actually avoiding dealing with their sin. It's a way of deflecting. Because if you actually say, I'm a sinner, that should then let people in to say very hard things to you. But often, I'm a sinner is said right before it's, and therefore don't say anything to me that's about my sin or brokenness. And I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. I think ultimately, if, if what Lewis says is true, and, and God, he gets in, and, and at first he starts doing things like, yeah, I know, that's, that's wrong in me, don't do that. But then he starts pointing out doors and things in our life that we feel, we, that we leave locked. And we don't want anyone to get into. And God's like, I want to go in that room. And we're like, no, nope, nope, we're not going in there. And Jesus is like, no, nah, I'm going to go in that room. And at that point, you have a choice. Do you let him in the room or do you kick him out? And I think Paul let him in all those places. And the more God ex- is allowed to explore your life, and not just the, the things at the surface, right, the things that make us look or appear to be good people. I mean, when, he, when we let him all the way in to all the parts of our lives, it's pretty easy to say, Yes, I'm the worst of sinner. And too often, I think when, when we go about our religious lives, we're, we're well acquainted with the sins of other people. How broken the culture is, how wrong other people are in their views of the world. But all that's a deflection. God is interested in the sin of other people, but he's primarily interested in your life with your sin. And the parts of your life he wants to go to work on. And I wonder if, if some of the lack of dramatic change in my own life, or maybe in yours, is that I haven't let Jesus all the way in to build the house in me he wants to build, to get to the places in my life he wants to get to. But I recognize that that's hard to do. It's hard to let someone into your house and just start knocking things about. Uh, one of my first ministry experiences was pastoring a small church in Jamestown, Indiana, and that's where I bought uh, our first house and um, started there single. That's where Misty and I got married, and, and then we, it was the first house we lived in together. I um, mean, it was a house that needed a lot of, of work, and, and I did some of that work, and I'm not a handyman at all. Like, I, my work is very poor. Um, it's not good. And, but one of the things I had to do is put trim up in the house, like baseboards. And so I did that, and, and then there was someone in our church, uh, his name was Mark, and, uh, and he built his own house. He had, was an incredible craftsman, incredibly handy at, at anything, and he looked at my trim work one day, and he's just like, this is, who did this? <clears throat> and I told him, uh, Misty. Because <laughs> it's embarrassing to like have a craftsman walk into your house, and it's like, you know, I bought the cheapest trim I could find, and I didn't know how to paint it, and I didn't know how to p- cut it properly. And, all. and he's just like, this is, this is truly, truly terrible work. 
let me, let me buy you real baseboard, and I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to do it together. And so he did. He took, he showed me, he bought, we bought real baseboard. He showed me how to cut it properly, brought the proper tools, and then he laid out a new baseboard in, um, in our, our home, which was, was better. But it was, it was a humbling experience to have someone just walk through your house and be like, who did that? And it's like, you know the answer. You don't have to ask. <laughs> and how many of us allow God to do that with us? To walk about our lives and to, to speak to us and say, what, what's going on there with your, your life? It's hard. It's humbling. And what Paul is saying is when, when the gospel got into his life, it didn't just come to him. It got in him. And I would just ask, have you had that experience that someone's dealing with you? Someone's getting in. And I would just ask, did you let them in? Him in. Did you invite God into that space? Because if, if you resist that work, there's probably not dramatic seismic change in your life. The gospel is an intrusion. And if we stop there, th- this would be a very depressing sermon, so we're not going to stop there. But Paul says one more thing about the gospel, which is it's not just uh, not a human message. It's not just an intrusion. It's, it's a person. And we began this series. The whole first sermon was really my attempt to summarize the gospel in the entirety of a sermon, 30, 35 minutes. I've read entire books that through the whole course of the book try to summarize the gospel in book-length treatment. In that first sermon, I even tried to summarize the gospel down to a paragraph. I said verses 3 and 4 really are a wonderful summary of what the gospel message is, especially that first sentence, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now I wanted to summarize the gospel in just four words. The gospel is Jesus. It's a person And Paul makes this clear in verse 12. He says, I didn't receive it, the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says the gospel is a revelation, which the word there, it's apocalypse, which all that means is an uncovering, an unveiling. He said, I didn't know what the gospel was, and then Jesus was revealed to me. Then I had the gospel. It's a person. Then he says again in verse 16, Paul writes, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. The gospel was Jesus revealed in Paul. The the gospel is Jesus getting to us, getting into us. And this intrusion into our lives ultimately is a person who, as Paul says in our text for next week, Galatians 2.20, is the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's someone you can let intrude because he loves you. He gave himself for you. It's why I let Mark into my house and ask me probing questions about the state of the quality of my handiwork. It's because he was a friend of mine. I trusted him. He was nice. He was kind. He was generous towards me. And Jesus is all of that towards you, and that's why he's going to meddle in your life because he's not content with the cottage that your life is. He intends to dramatically, seismically change the person that you are so that he can come and live in a palace the whole reason for your existence, why you're here as a human being made in the image of God, is to have that encounter with God, to be his friend. That as Dallas Willard writes, you are an unceasing spiritual being. 
Just pause there for a minute. That's that's who Christians believe human beings are, unceasing spiritual beings. Which is why we prayed, or why I prayed what I prayed at the beginning of this um, sermon. Why we believe all human beings are made in the image of God. Why we speak with, with kindness and gentleness to all people, regardless of whether they agree with us or disagree with us, because every person we encounter is an unceasing spiritual being, as Willard says, called for an intimate and transforming friendship with the creative community that is the Trinity. We exist for friendship with God. Jesus is the gospel. The good news of this world is that God exists, and he desires to know you and make you into a person who perfectly embodies his image. And so the message of this sermon is not, you need to go and radically, seismically change your life. And here's a list of things that could radically, you could do. If you do these things, your life will look, it's not it. The message of this sermon is, if you enter into a friendship with God, and you let Jesus in, you are going to become a radically, seismically different person. So let him in. Make your life about pursuing friendship with God. Enter into a friendship with God, and you become a radically different person. The best illustration of this is uh, my, favorite, my favorite mother's story, which is about Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley had 19 kids. First service, I, had, I just had to stop there. Like, that's a woman right there. Incredible. Uh, 19 kids. Nine of them died in infancy. Incredible loss. She had her house burned down by Christians two times. Not just once twice. Her husband was a pastor, and apparently in that day, if you were unhappy with the pastoral leadership, you you burned their house down. It's not for an idea for anyone here. Her husband, uh, though he was a pastor, had some shady practices as a part of his life, and he ended up in debtor's prison. So she ended up a single mom with 10 kids who made her life about cultivating friendship with God. She had a rule she lived by. One hour of entertainment equaled one hour of prayer. I I think about that in my own life. For every hour I'm on my phone or watching sports, I'm praying an hour. I'm not doing that right now, just to be abundantly clear. But what kind of person would I be if I did? You You might ask the question, how with 10 kids, single mom, do you pray? Well, Susanna had a rule. Her apron would go over her head and she told her kids, when you see my apron over my head, I'm speaking to God, do not speak to me. And there in her kitchen, her tent became a tabernacle, a a temple, which she threw over her head and she cultivated friendship with God. And the result of just that commitment to, to praying before her father meant her life was the seed of major revival in Britain. Slavery was probably overcome in Britain because of Susanna's commitment to cultivating friendship with God. Her two sons, John and Charles, became leaders of revival in Britain, opposing slavery, calling Christians back to faith in God. And if you asked either of them, how did you become men of faith? They would have said, our mother. How? She just tossed that apron over her head and she led Jesus all the way in. She embodied the fact that the gospel is not a list of commands you are to live with. It is a a friendship you are invited into. It's a person. And the gospel being a person 
might have been best described by her son, Charles Wesley, in his hymn, And Can It Be, where he writes, Jesus left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye disfused a quickening ray, I woke my dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. When you see the Son of God loving you unto death, giving himself and loving you, it will rock you into dramatic seismic change because in Christ you already have the love of God, finished work. You don't have to earn it anymore. It's given freely, receive it by faith. And that is not a human message. Jesus Christ came down from heaven because this message is not believable. So Jesus had to come down from heaven and say, this is what reality truly is. My salvation is offered to you through grace. But this message is intrusive. He's going to get in. He's going to try to get in. So let him in. Let him intrude. Because when he starts intruding, his love gets real. When he starts intruding, when he starts saying, I want into that room you won't let me into, what you find is that room was a dungeon in the first place. And when you let him in, you can sing with Charles Wesley, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke my dungeon flame with lights. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Let us pray. Father, we, we want to be people of the kingdom of God whose lives announce an alternative reality to the world we will encounter when we walk out these doors today. A, war, a world where the vulnerable are not protected, where there's division and anger and hatred. And we said in all that your response to this broken world was to become the, the, the place of, of division, anger, rage, where it all got poured out onto a cross. And it's there, we God, we can meet our salvation, our forgiveness, our freedom, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but because you're trying to get in, get into us to make us new, to build a palace in which you intend to come and live. So Father, give us hearts open to your work, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.